Welcome to the CSIS Podcast. I'm Colin Quinn. This episode comes after a bit of a delay because, well, it's been a little hard to keep track of things. Such as the pace at which President Trump has taken to the Oval Office, there are any number of issues we could talk about. Theresa May's visit, Enrique Peña Nieto's cancelled visit, TPP getting its final nail in the coffin. All these would usually get a show in themselves, and we'll talk about how that works out later in the show. But they're all overshadowed by Friday's executive order that effectively banned citizens of Iran, Iraq, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, and Yemen from entry to the United States for 90 days. It suspended all refugee admissions for 120 days, and the order also sought to prioritize refugees fleeing religious persecution, which would appear to establish a religious test for those wishing to enter the U.S. The order has met with mass confusion at airports around the world, and also mass protests in the United States and elsewhere. So this week, we hear from Anthony Cordesman on what, if anything, the order achieves, and what kind of message it sends to the world about this new administration. This basically, almost arbitrarily, picks out people from those seven countries. It sort of dances around it somatically, but it clearly has a pro-Christian bias of a kind which is more likely to target Christians in Muslim countries than help Christian refugees. And it was implemented in a way which basically was rushed into being, so there are all kinds of duplicative reporting requirements. It does not seem to have had the clearance of either the Secretary for Homeland Defense, General Kelly, or who have been given to General Mattis, now Secretary Mattis, the Secretary of Defense. And it was rushed into being in ways where people with green cards didn't know whether they could leave or come back. People who'd already been vetted, taken the risk of often selling their businesses and homes, were in transit, were suddenly blocked. Where people who were students had no way to know what was going to happen. And while we don't tend to think of this as a critical aspect of our strategy and strategic posture, for example, the large number of Iranian students that come to the U.S. go back as people with a background in the West, a real-world picture of the U.S., and their critical supports for the moderate movements. And then we have the fact that for the next 120 days, no one in the Islamic world or the rest of the world knows what's going to happen next and what the ultimate result of this executive order is because we've implemented the order and then decided to study what we should do. I think that to some extent it has achieved precisely the opposite of what was intended. There's no question there is a really serious problem with violent Islamist extremism. There is a problem with terrorism. It does spill over into the United States, although virtually all of the violence and all of the casualties are actually centered in the Middle East, in the Muslim world, consists largely of Muslim extremists fighting moderate mainstream Muslims. 
The problem is the way it's phrased is you have picked out Muslims from seven countries. Two of those countries we are actively fighting in with Muslim allies in Syria and in Iraq. In several of the other countries, Libya, Somalia, and Yemen, the fighting isn't as intense, but the U.S. has carried out operations in support of moderate Muslim allies and against extremists with the support of Muslims. We are dependent on Muslim allies in Asia and not simply countries like Afghanistan, where again our troops are dependent on Muslims working with them in the host country, but in key areas in countries like Indonesia and Malaysia. What I don't understand, I mean, there's a lot that I don't understand about this. Why the rush? I think that the president made a campaign promise. In some ways, this is more moderate, certainly, than banning all Muslims, which there are a mere 1.6 billion in the world. But it was also clearly Part of a rush to get out, a sort of early wave showing that the president would act decisively. And looking at the drafting, it certainly was drafted by people around the president who I think saw a window of opportunity to get most of what were very hard line views that somehow we now have a global war with Islamic extremism which is so threatening that you can take virtually any step necessary to advance what they think of as the proper U.S. position. And the problem is it's certainly a very real global threat, but acting as this with World War III or World War II or even World War I takes it far beyond the limits of what it is. Seeing it in domestic terms is frankly totally unrealistic in a count of some 400 terrorist incidents in the U.S. since 9-11, 79% were committed by people born in the U.S. or people who held naturalized citizenship. The number from the seven countries was almost negligible. But what's really critical is that the main threat here is the fighting within largely Muslim states between moderate Muslims and extremist, relatively small, but very violent minorities. There are vast numbers of Muslims in the world. Alienating them is a massive problem. We face threats other than extremism, like Iran, and we remain, as does the world, dependent on a global economy where the 17 million barrels a day of oil exports that come out of the Gulf are absolutely critical to the health of the global economy and, for that matter, every job in America. And the ban doesn't affect all Muslim countries, um, but there's a perception there that it is going after Muslims. So what's the damage to the U.S. of even that perception? Well, I think the problem is we don't really know yet because governments react to what happens over time. It's not a matter of headlines or media coverage. <clears throat> and right now, we have no idea at the end of 120 days where we'll be. The other problem is the governments do react to their own populations and their own media. And what people have seen all over the world 
is Muslims that work for the United States, often at the risk of their life, suddenly being blocked, families in transit, people who went through the full vetting process, coming for scholarships or study in the United States, not only being blocked, but potentially losing their future and a great deal of money. The human images are extraordinarily negative. And governments have to take this into account. And we talked a little bit about Iran. Uh, another one of the countries on the list is Iraq. Um, there's still a large U.S. troop presence there. What happens there? We don't know what the impact is going to be. The fact is that many of the Iraqis that are essentially dependent on American air power, support from American helicopters, multiple rocket launchers, where we've just built up a far larger presence in the last few weeks, sending people forward as trainers and advisors at the brigade level, for at least the time being, to some extent, they need the United States. But politically, Iraq has already, basically, passed reciprocal legislation blocking entry by Americans. And the partnership we have there is critical. It's critical to containing Iran. It's critical to defeating ISIS, preventing the rise or re-rise of Al-Qaeda and similar movements, even when ISIS is defeated. And basically, it's sending a message that even when you're fighting side by side with Americans, you're not getting any respect or credit or being treated as equal. And that's the Middle East. What about other allies? I think what's critical is to watch the European reaction. But it's also true of many countries in Asia. One key reaction is now we know what America first means and it's isolationism. It's a rejection, basically, of America's role as a world power. It's the wrong reaction. It's unfair to the administration. But it is one of the key reactions. Another reaction is you can't work with this United States because it is so extreme that if you have the values of most European powers, or for that matter, many Asian and other states, you can't share in the kind of counterterrorism, it to some extent feeds the concern in Asia about the U.S. somehow retreating. And that concern tends to be reflected in part by having to turn to China or at least accept China's role as an emerging power, perhaps to a somewhat exaggerated degree. And it also, quite frankly, on a very broad level, discredits the moral and ethical arguments that we have as a nation in dealing with other countries and extremist movements. How far this will go is, of course, going to depend on how this plays out over the next 90, 120, or 200 days. There are so many deadlines in the executive order, it's almost impossible to know where we go next. Yeah, it's something like this. It's easy to exaggerate because we don't know what the long-term effects are going to be. But so far, it's caused a lot of, of trouble. Is there any way you can walk this back? Well, I think there are a lot of ways to walk it back. I think first, you know, you wait 30 days and you decide that 
we've examined this, the vetting process. There are a whole host of things we can do right now that will open things up to those seven countries. You can immediately take humanitarian action so you don't deprive families of the ability to unite. You don't block people who've already been vetted. You clarify very clearly that people with green cards or who have been vetted in the past can come back or leave. These aren't very dramatic measures in terms of the text, but they're absolutely critical in human terms. You can focus on some of the more positive aspects of the executive order, which are almost buried in the negatives. One of them is the need for cooperation, for sharing data throughout the world on who is a potential extremist. Another is cooperation in areas like biometrics, which potentially help every country, particularly if we are prepared to share technology and help create a more common database. You also can take a look at the vetting process, which in many cases is a practical nightmare. Two years waiting to be vetted is, for many people, simply impossible. It's more money, it's more time, it's more suffering than they can frankly bear. And it's simply a fact that in many countries, the vetting process is almost arbitrary because if you're in the middle of a civil war, it's a little hard to get a clear set of records from your local police department or a whole host of other sources of information. You have to have a process which is more timely and more consistent. And one of your key problems is right now, as the executive order does point out, buried somewhere in the text, we don't have anything like the number of people who can speak the language of the country where they're supposed to be doing the vetting and have the background to do it properly. So what we need is a system that works, not to break the system that doesn't. We talked about the sentiment, but also how this was implemented was a little worrisome. You've seen many administrations come and, and go. Does it tell us anything early on about how things are going to be conducted? Well, look, everybody makes mistakes. And almost everyone, every president, makes mistakes early in their time in office. I think the fear here is <clears throat> we're beginning with a more extreme position. In many ways, in fairness to the president, he took many different stands on the same issue. And some of them were relatively moderate and some weren't. I think the fear is that what was a rush to do something was done in ways where the people who did it clearly didn't understand the consequences of their act, were immediately pushed into a very disturbing mode, which is let's not fix it, let's claim it's a success, and where, frankly, you had what seemed to be a few ideologues bypassing the president's new appointees and a process where several weeks of review and drafting and very, very careful thought could have produced a far more effective document without any of the backlash or negative aspects and one that might have inspired international cooperation and not international 
condemnation. And the question, quite honestly, is are you going to sit and defend this? Or are you going to fix it and learn from the experience? And I'm afraid we're going to spend at least a couple of months in suspense, not only over this executive order, but a lot of the other things that are being done and rushed forward. Suspense because the question is, what's the learning curve? And in the worst case, if any. And that was Anthony Cordesman bringing us to the end of our show. I mentioned at the beginning that such is the pace of things. Uh, the show's format of one topic per show may end up missing things. I don't want to do that, but I also don't want the show to become what President Trump did this week. There are plenty of podcasts that do that far better than this one. So if you have ideas of what you'd want to hear, do please let me know. I'm at cquinn at css.org, or you can find me on Twitter. So until next week, I'm Colin Quinn. Thanks for listening.